and welcome to Pyres and Twirling Unwired, a daily discussion about business, technology, and current events around the world. Featuring Tim Pyres, a career software, privacy, and mobile communication pro, and Ben Sperling, a leading professional in digital health and healthcare technology. This program is casual and non-rehearsed, and may feature occasional guests or recorded interviews. Let's join Jim and Ben now. Hello and welcome to Unwired, episode 20 for Thursday, April 30th, 2020. You've entered day 49 of the lockdown. I am Jim Pyers from FEMA Region 9, from a hidden bunker in the Hidden Jewel compound in Escondido. Hey, Ben. Hey, Jim. This is Ben Sperling coming in live from Point Loma, California. Point Loma. We've got a very special guest today. Now, Ben forces me not to say his name until the end of the intro. So I'm just going to I'm going to play the intro and then we're going to we're going to introduce our guest. So our guest today was a federal agent for 27 years before retiring in 2014. He achieved worldwide notoriety as one of history's most daring undercover operators during uh, missions targeting America's violent crime. He often played the role of a shrewdly calculating hitman or mob debt collector, infiltrating scores of deadly criminal enterprises while living amongst street and prison gangs, anti-government extremists, gun-running groups, drug traffickers, and organized crime members. A defense attorney once described him as a government-trained predator, repeatedly sent on seek-and-destroy missions in search of drugs, guns, and violence. Um, he's perhaps best known for his landmark effort against the Hells Angels. He was the first ever lawman to defeat the gang's multi-layered security measures and um, at any cost and without regard for the agent himself or those that he crossed path with. Um, he's, he's also known for his uh, he's, he's a, he's a well-known author and he has his, his book about that investigation that I described was, no Angel, uh, which is a, and this is both Ben and I have been reading that book. I, I just finished my harrowing undercover journey to the inner circle of the Hell's Angels. It was a New York Times bestseller uh, and international bestseller. His follow-up book, Catching Hell, which I think was just released in 2018, uh, a true story of abandonment and betrayal. It's a memoir that details the events of our guest's life and career. He also has a Catching Hell training uh, for law enforcement groups and his Dent the Universe program for corporate audiences are delivered nationwide. Jay Dobbins, welcome to Unwired. Thanks for being here. Hey, Jimmy, thanks for having me. Ben, thank you. Uh, welcome uh, to the Unwired audience and I'm flattered to be here with you guys. It's great. I, I do have to take a, a little bit of time. So Jay and I have a little bit of history together. Um, we grew up uh, in Tucson, Arizona, and we were uh, actually on the same uh, youth football team when we were, uh, I guess, 14 or 15 years old and uh, played together. It, we also went to rival high schools in Tucson. So um, Jay played at uh, Saguaro, uh, Tucson, and I went to Santa Rita of Tucson. Uh, so to put things in perspective, I was on the southeast side and uh, Jay was on the northeast side. So you can you kind of get a, a sense of uh, who had the upper hand there. 
<laughs> always the South versus the North. We were we were definitely the uh, the underdogs. So um, and today we're going to do a little uh, good cop, bad cop. Jay, you should probably know what that is. Um, we, um, you know, Ben's going to ask the hard questions. I'm the easy one. I'll, I'll give you Ben's address afterwards if he's too tough on you. And uh, yeah, let's just have some fun. Uh, and and we want to talk about. I, I have a bunch of questions for you too. We're really interested to learn, uh, you know, your history and man, man, it's just it's one of the most amazing stories I've ever I've come across. So we're excited to have you and look forward to chatting about that. You got any memories for me on uh, on when we played together? <laughs> so long. Ago. I do. I remember yep. that we had a, a a really amazing youth football team, an undefeated youth football team. And I remember that um, I was probably one of the worst players on that team. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember. I remember. Yeah, you, we were loaded. There was some amazing athletes and uh, good guys. That was a lot of fun. And and it's strange, uh, not strange, but for me in my life, especially looking back in Tucson, I've I still have a lot of those relationships with those young players, either from youth football, basketball, baseball, whatever it was. Uh, I've got lifelong relationships there, and you know I. I do appreciate, you know, we haven't been in touch for quite some time, but, you know, I reached out to Jay and he's like, bam, he just gets right back to me. And and I just feel like that's because, you know, we had that connection at some point at, at an important time in our lives, you know, 14, 15, 16, whatever it was. And uh, yeah, it, it, th that kind of thing just sticks with you. I, I remember you well. I remember the kind of player you were. I, I remember I love hearing your stories where you're diving into the cactus to to get a ball that you couldn't even catch. That's that's how I remember you uh, as a player. And so it was fun to kind of to relive those things. Um, you know, we, so, uh, we, th that at, at that point in our life, in, in any young person's life, um, you build you're building that brotherhood and sisterhood through team sports that it's like your first posse, man. It's your first crew. That's your first that, you know, those little league teams are your first group of boys or group of girls that you just like you roll with, you go shoulder to shoulder with, and you're like, Hey, come on, man, my guys against your guys. And, and you build uh, like it very innocently, man, you build those bonds that like we're proving in this conversation last a lifetime, yep. you know, like, like I hadn't talked to you, Jimmy, in, in years and, and you called me last night and we were chatting and it was like I had talked to you yesterday. <laughs> That's what I felt too. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. Yeah, Jay, I'm certainly excited to have you on the show. I mean, your background is, is pretty extraordinary. Uh, and I, my first question to you, Jim, if you don't mind, if I won't go first, is uh, no, go for it. Uh, how how did you go from you know playing football? I mean, you obviously excelled in in high school, college, and then you know it looks like you, you played in the USFL and, and the Canadian Football League. How did you go from that to a law enforcement agent? Like what what was the jump? Well, it was. Uh unplanned and involuntary, to be quite honest with you. 
um, I was always uh, a plan A guy. I never had a plan B. Um, I'm, uh, I've got a million personality flaws and personality quirks and things I probably don't like about myself. One of them is like, I'm super OCD. I'm like, I'm very focused. Um, I don't really get distracted and uh, I, I don't have alternative plans for what my goal is. And my goal was always to play football. I never thought about anything else. Awesome. And uh, can you guys hear me? Yep. yep. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, we lost you there for a second. So, you know, in this process, um, when it came time to play professional football, um, I wasn't as good as I thought I was, to be quite honest with you. I went to the uh, 1984 NFL Combine, and uh, I thought this was my chance, and I was going to make my name. I was an all-pack-10 receiver, and um, I was going to show on this national stage all these coaches and general managers and scouts how bad they needed me to be a part of their organization. And about 10 minutes into the drills, I realized I wasn't going to play pro football. Like I couldn't keep up with the people that were in my group. I couldn't do what they could do. I couldn't run as fast. I couldn't jump as high. I wasn't as athletic. Um, and all of a sudden my plan a was, was crashing. Now in my defense, the two guys in my group, um, uh, one was Andre Reed, who was playing at Cutstown state, who then went on to play 15 years with the Buffalo bills and is in the hall of fame. Uh, the other guy went to Mississippi Valley state and he was unknown at that time, but it was Jerry Rice. So I was comparing myself to two of the greatest receivers in the history of the game. And, but like, nonetheless, I, I was not the player that they were. And at that point in time, the television show, Miami Vice was very popular. Not, and not the movie, not Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx. Like there's probably members of your audience who don't remember that Miami Vice was actually a television show. Yeah, Don Johnson, yeah. Don Johnson, right? And so I'm trying to figure out like where my life goes. Like all my goals had been reset. Like what's next, Jay? And I'm watching Sonny Crockett like drive a Lamborghini around South Beach and he's wearing a Hugo Boss suit and he's like meeting with drug kingpins. And I was like, man, I can do that. I think I can do that. Um, <laughs> you know, and I got caught up in the, the glamour of it and the sexiness of it. Um, not knowing any different, not knowing that that wasn't the real world, that that was Hollywood's characterization of that world. But nonetheless, I was like, man, I'm going to give that a try. I think I can do that. So what's that like? So you're like, I want to be Sonny, you know, Sonny Crockett, Sonny Crockett. I, what do I, how do you sign up? How do you, how do you go for that? Dude, like, like pretty much anybody, uh, applies for any job out there in the real world. You fill out an application, you go to interviews, you go to uh, panel interviews, you're tested. Uh, the process is not all that different than any other job application out there. And then ultimately, you know, after a period of time, they notify you whether you've made the cut or not. So when you, when you joined ATF, I mean, was it you're applying for undercover or you're joining the ATF and you know that likely you'll go undercover? 
I, uh, I wanted to join ATF. I, I, I interviewed with a bunch of federal agencies and a bunch of the big ones, you know, FBI, DEA, Secret Service. Uh, the customs branch was very uh, hot at that time because of the nar air narcotics trafficking. Um, but I wanted to join ATF because ATF had the most dynamic undercover program in federal law enforcement. And I, I wanted to work undercover. I didn't know if I could do it. I didn't know if I would be any good at it, but I didn't want to work undercover on the junior varsity. Like I wanted to play like D1 undercover. You know, I wanted to play professional undercover. I wanted to see if I could do it with the best of the best. And so that's how I ended up there. Okay, but you must have been pretty good in school uh, or, you, you know, you must have been a good student or had good good grades to, to even make the cut for some of these things um, for interviews and things like that. But it also sounds like you had a vision of being an undercover cop uh, deeper than just watching it on TV. I mean, it sounds like you you thought about it. You knew you, you, knew you wanted to be a, a pro and a lot of things like that. Like I can tell you, when I was your age, uh, at that point in time, you know, yeah, I couldn't, I, I couldn't think that far ahead. So it's, it's just interesting. You had a vision of it somehow embedded in yourself. How, how did, how did that come about? What was the, what ignited that in you? Jim, you know, I, I knew what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I'd be any good at it. Um, but I knew what I wanted to do. I, I, I've always been uh, very, like I said earlier, very focused on my goals, willing to work um, and, and try to outwork anybody else to achieve what I wanted to do. Um, but it, it's, it's, it, you know, it's a process. You don't just, you don't, you don't just sign up and go undercover. You know, there's a process of learning that goes on to do that. And um, so I got hired on. And, and I started volunteering for to touch any undercover case I could. It didn't matter if I was on a cover team. It didn't matter if I was a background guy. I just wanted to gain experience. I wanted to learn. I wanted to see how it was done, see how it was done by people that were doing it well and successfully, and try to steal every piece of information, every piece of knowledge and wisdom I could and try to make it part of, put it in my toolbox, put all those tools in my toolbox to see if I could do it. But like in that big picture, you know, I knew probably more of what I didn't want to be than what I did want to be. And I knew that I wanted to have a job that when I woke up in the morning, when my alarm clock went off and I put my feet on the ground, that I was trying to do something that served someone else. I was never driven by money. I was, I, you know, I was, I was never driven by the uh, uh, acquisition of things. Uh, I wanted to feel good about what I was doing and that I was, in this case, like protecting people. Um, I took a huge amount of pride in that. Of, of carrying a badge and carrying a gun and being asked to stand in the path of predators on behalf of good and innocent people who wanted to live peaceful lives, but who couldn't stand up or wouldn't stand up for themselves.
interesting. If there's a book called Ordinary Men where regular guys and police officers turn into bad guys, do you think there's – so you were involved in this sort of underbelly, uh, the you know, the Hells Angels and these motorcycle gangs and people on the fringe of society. Do you think that they end up there because of a bunch of events or do you think they're just pathological and that's where they're going to end up anyway? Or, or, or do you think they're good people that, you know, they're ordinary people that just the, the situation turns bad for them? How do you see it after you dealt with these people? You became friends with them. Some of them were your enemies. Some were your, you know, sort of just, just people you worked with. What's the, what's your verdict? Yeah, I, I, you know, there's a couple elements to that to that question. I look at myself, um, I am not uh, flattered or impressed with myself. I look at myself as a common man who has been placed in a lot of uncommon situations and did the best that he could. Just like, you know, literally millions of other people out there who um, happen to be school teachers or mechanics or uh, doctors or lawyers or landscapers or whatever, just, just men and women that get up in the morning, uh, put their feet on the ground and go to work and try to do it the very best that they can. Whether they're pushing a broom or whether they're flying the space shuttle, you know, whether they're digging a trench or they're operating on someone's brain and everything in between. Um, there's people out there who um, they go all in to do whatever it is they're doing best they can. The second part of your question with regards to the, like how people end up where they end up, man, like so much of it comes back to choices, man, the choices we make in our life, the choices we make, especially early in our life. When I talk to kids, I'm like, man, the, the choices you're making now with uh, regards to your, to your education, with regards to your friends, with regards to like who you are, who you're hanging out with, where you're hanging out with them, they impact our lives sometimes forever. Um, so a lot of the people I worked on that were suspects, that were criminals, were not unpleasant people to be around. Um, they were not unintelligent people either. But somewhere along the, their life path, they made choices that put them where they were, and I made choices that put me where I was. You know, in your book, Jay, you, you mentioned a character, and I apologize, I forget his name, but you, he, were just, he served in uh, Vietnam, and I think it was two silver stars he got, and you even made a reference in the book that you kind of liked him at first or, you know, had some respect for him because of that and what he did, and it was almost like some remorse that you knew that you were going to have to take him down. You know, there's people in this, in this, the grand scheme of my undercover life, you know, I, I worked, I, I was part, a participant in over 500 undercover operations during the course of my career. And so I've met all kinds of people, all kinds of criminals, low level up to murderers and rapists, like nobody's up to like uh, narco uh, cartel level drug dealers. And so in this process and, and working undercover, you spend time with people in, in your environment and in their environment. And not every criminal that I crossed paths with was a, a dislikable person. 
There's some of them that were very charming. There were some of them that I enjoyed spending time with. Um, and I would, I would grow an affection for them. And then I would see them do something despicable. And it would almost break my heart, to be quite honest with you, because I'd be looking at them saying, you're better than this. I've seen better in you than what you just did. Um, but that's not for me to sort out. Like, like I see a, a violation. I see a crime committed. Um, I report that out. Uh, prosecutors and judges and juries make those decisions on what happens to those people. I am just a information source of, of what I saw, heard, smelled, did in the process and in the presence of criminals. Did, did you ever have you ever gone to bat for somebody like that when they were getting prosecuted almost as a character witness to for leniency or whatnot? You know, I, I have I have uh, I, what I tried to do um, and, and I was consistent and honest in the process of this. I testified and spoke of people truthfully and honestly um, because I don't care who you are. You deserve that. You deserve to have the truth told about you and you deserve to have it spoken of you in an honest way. And so if I saw something redeeming in someone, like I wasn't gonna hold that back. Um, at the same time, I had to tell some pretty terrible stories about people. Um, but like I said, I, like, I'm not the judge, jury, and executioner on these people. Um, I, 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 I testified to what I said and, and or what I saw and did. Um, Someone else makes those choices. Sure. And so as you were doing Black Biscuit, and that was the, the undercover name for the undercover investigation into the Hells Angels. Um, one of the things, I mean, I was gripped by this and I was kind of on my on the edge going, this guy is from Arizona, right? Has a family in Arizona, uh, was had a successful you know football career there. Um, and now he is going undercover in Arizona. I'm like, how is he not going to get caught? So like one of the times that really threw me off was when you were in San Diego for some training, updated on training for ATF, um, you ran to Smitty, who was one of the one of the, the Hells Angel members, and he was with his family in San Diego. I'm thinking, God, what happens if Jay had taken his family to San Diego that time for a vacation and you ran into Smitty. Like, how would you have played that off? Well, I'll give you an even uh, better example. Um, I have been with my family when I've run into criminals during active investigations. Um, one in, in particular, I was with my daughter. Um, we were shopping and ran into a, a very violent criminal, a guy with a, like a, like a very wicked criminal history that I was undercover on. Um, and, and I'll tell you one of the, this leads into a, a, a little bit of another story, but one of the downsides of this lifestyle is the battle damage that I put on my family in the process. And so my kids knew nothing different. My kids grew up, uh, when I was working undercover and we had some rules when I was with my kids, when we were out socially, when we were out publicly. And I told them, think of like, I will grab your hand. I will grab your shoulder. 
and think of it like a, a traffic light. If I grab you, if, if we confront somebody and I say, this is a red light, stop what you're doing. Just like you were driving a car, just stop and hold tight. If I say it's a yellow light, that means like you be cautious now and follow my lead. You just pay attention to what's going on. And if I say it's a green light, you run away from me as fast as you can. You green light go and get away from me as fast as you can. And don't come back looking for me. I will find you. Don't come back to help me. You just get away from where we were at as fast as you can. When, when your kids, when your babies are raised that way, that's not normal. And that creates, uh, that creates issues for them because most, most parents don't have to have those explanations for their kids. And so that's just kind of one of the harsh truths of that analogy that you gave me. So what age were you starting to, you gave them the, the traffic light example, you know, to prep them? Well, you know, like pretty much darn near as soon as they were capable of understanding it. You know, um, my kid, my, my daughter was born when I was 30. My um, son was born when I was probably 34, 35. So, you know, at that point I had eight, 10 years of undercover work under my belt. I knew what the streets were like and I knew who I was dealing with. So, you know, as, as my kids grew and as they were able to comprehend some of this, that that's when I started like trying to put those lessons on them. Like, you know, knowing that I had to live my life. I had to, I had to maintain somewhat of uh, normalcy in my personal life, but that there was a risk that come that comes with it. Um, the, the risk to me is inherent. It's part of the job. The risk to my family, like they didn't sign on for that. That's that, you know, they just want a dad. They just want a husband. Um, they don't care if, you know, if their husband infiltrates the hairs, the hell's angels, they don't care if dad is, you know, Donnie Brasco part two, they want someone to come home and play catch and wrestle around and, and read books and go to the movies and do those things that we are supposed to do with our kids. That's what they want. That's what they expected. And I wasn't always that guy. You seem to be very, to be able to compartmentalize things. Uh, at least, you know, the job you had and the things that you had, it sounded like you made every effort to make the T-ball games driving all night. Um, and I'm sure there's things that you did miss. Um, that's inevitable, but like you had that commitment and, and, and you were telling these stories about, you know, doing lawn work. And I was like, okay, you know, that's interesting. Like he, he's coming home and he's doing kind of the normal things that we all, the honeydew list that we all have. Right. Um, I was just amazed at how you were able to compartmentalize that. I mean, how, how much brain power did that take for you to do that? You know, there were times in my life where I struggled to uh, hold on to, to normalcy, to something, even something as mundane as mowing the grass at the house, um, just sitting at the kitchen table and having a cup of coffee with my wife, uh, making a t-ball game that, um, 
that I, I was I, th there was a point where I really was fighting to hold on to, to like something that was that was normal. And it must have been challenging. Now, one of the other things as, as I was as I was going through this and reading it, I'm like, gosh, you know, is anybody going to follow him back to, uh, you know, where you guys had your headquarters at or follow him back to his home? I mean, did that did that enter into your mind that you could have been followed all the time? And it's a it's a real risk. It's not uh, it's not something that's entirely created through Hollywood. Um, you know, when I was working on the Hells Angels, on three different occasions, unbeknownst to me, they put private investigators on me, trying to follow me, trying to confirm the cover story that I had put in front of them, and like almost doing their own investigation of me while I was investigating them. So, so being followed, being researched, being looked at from the outside is a, is a real problem. Um, I like, and, and when I'm, when I'm, and when I was talking about trying to hang on to something normal, like something as simple as going home, something as simple as going to the office was never simple. Like I couldn't just go home. I had to do heat runs before I went home. I had to, I had to try to shake a tail, even if there was one there, or even if there was an imagined one there, I had to try to shake a tail before I went to my house to try to avoid exactly what you described that's an insane amount of brain power that's got to be focused on that every time to make sure you don't make mistakes no and when you're tired and when you're worn out and you had these all these things going on and yeah you, you want to call it a day and you can't I, I i also wonder jay do you think about in a day because ben and i were talking about this if you if you think about what you did in that period of time you know it's almost I mean, it's pre-internet, it's pre-social media, it's pre-cell phone, for the most part, you know, it's pre a lot of things. How tough would it be to pull off something like this uh, that you did, that you were able to successfully um, complete today? Uh, seems like order of magnitude tougher. Much harder. The, the, the ability for uh, any of us to find out something about anybody else is so much easier now uh, with the internet, with the search engines, with the, the different databases that are available. I got in just under the wire of that, just as that was starting to blossom and bloom. Um, and the reality of it is, is that in today's world, Unless you have the CIA behind you and they're going to completely wash every remnant of you out of uh, existence, you can't hide. You, you, we simply can't. We don't have the resources or the ability to cover all our tracks. Um, it's just not possible. Yeah, it's a good point. You were, you were able to uh, kind of disappear and pop back up and, you know, go hide out and pop back up. Uh, you know, today with facial recognition, you know, I can go to newspapers.com and, and find your pictures that were in, you know, from your high school and college years go, oh, there's, you know, there's Jay Dobbins mug in the, you know, that, that's that guy I've been seeing around town. You know, you, you, it would be tough to hide now. Yes. I, I got in under the wire of when that really took off 
And um, it's much harder to do what I did today than it was when I did it. Um, there's, there's men and women out there doing it. They're very good at it. They've learned to uh, uh, take technology and use it to their advantage as well. It, it's, it's, there's, it's not a one-way street. Like right, we right. can put it in play for us as well as it works against us. But, th but that was, um, of all the problems I had, that was not one that uh, was at the forefront. So Black, Black Biscuit in general, I mean, there obviously was some RICO indictments. How do you feel overall? I mean, you committed a good chunk of your life, put yourself at risk. How do you feel overall of the, not, and we're going to talk a little bit about how you were treated afterwards, but the, the cases themselves against the Hells Angels, how do you feel about the, the outcome? Well, there, that, you know, that's a, a two-part question that your audience may not be aware of. The investigation itself. Uh, I'm immensely proud of uh, what we accomplished. Uh, we indicted uh, 55 members and associates of the Hells Angels, 16 of them on RICO charges, um, uh, racketeering charges. Two of them were uh, death penalty candidates for a, a murder that they committed while I was undercover. That was uh, that we, we did our jobs. The other side of that story that, that some people aren't aware of, and, and I don't hide from this, is that the prosecution fell apart. The, the government, the attorneys and the case agents and the people that actually controlled the prosecution of the case could not agree on how to present that case. And the internal government arguments that took place resulted in uh, like dismissal of charges and reduced charges and so in the end, the ultimate final prosecution was not as uh, powerful, as commanding as it as the case justified it to be that the, the investigation today is every bit as prosecutable and winnable as it was when that case ended in July of 2003, based on evidence, based on agent testimony based on uh, electronic audio and video recorded criminal conversations. But man, you know what, when the, when the lawyers get involved, like things change and that's, you know, as, as any of us know, control what you can control. Um, that was out of my control. I controlled what I was capable of controlling. I could not run that case top to bottom. I could not take that case into a courtroom. Sure. Um, so, so let me ask you this. So after you know, it came out during that, your real identity, which put which exposed you and your family to grave danger. Right. So how did your name come out during this process? Why wasn't it protected enough? Why were you unmasked? Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's actually um, the fact that my name came out just on the surface does not bother me. Um, it's actually the beauty of living in America is that our laws and our rules say that you, any of us that are accused of a crime, get to face our accusers. So that was going to come out. The fact that that Jaybird, this this gun runner, debt collector, quasi hitman actually turns out to be Jay Dobbins an undercover federal agent 
I knew that was going to come out. When it got nasty is when my name came out, my family and I received like a series, years of death and violence threats, confirmed valid, uh, credible death and violence threats. And the agency I worked for refused to help us. And when I complained about that refusal to assist us, uh, man, you really got to be careful when you challenge uh, government executives who are in powerful positions. Because at that point in retaliation and in payback, they unmasked all my protective documents. So although people knew, suspects knew, hey, this Jaybird is Jay Dobbins, they didn't really know a whole lot more about me. The government unmasked um, all the, the hidden documents, all the concealed documents that were used to protect where I lived, my vehicles, uh, tax records, uh, credit card information, all those things. And when they unmasked my, my, ba my backstopping, my, my, my cover documents, then I was very quickly and very easily found. And in the summer of August of 2008, my house was burned to the ground. Um, and this was after years of death and violence threats. Uh, and so that is ultimately where my personal dispute with the government came in. That's unbelievable. So, so you go, you know, going in that your name's going to come out. Nowadays, if you're know your name's going to come out as an uh, for when you go to prosecution, I mean, doesn't it immediately set you up for a risk now? In, in nowadays versus then, it does. It, it's an inherent part of the, it's an inherent risk with the job. Um, you're going to have to testify. You're going to have to take the stand. Um, there are countries where undercover agents testify under false names with a hood on their head. Um, that's not our system. That's not how things work here. We get to face our accusers. If, if I accused you of a crime or if you accused me of a crime and we we're sitting in a courtroom, I want to be able to see you sit in the witness stand, take an oath, tell your story, and I want to be able to see your face. That's part of it. Yeah. I understood that going into it. Um, what I agree I with understand that. Was, yeah, I, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, I agree with the you know constitutional you know uh, of that of being able to face your ex accusers. It's just a little bit mind blowing when you think about that. You know, you're going undercover. This is the you know likely extremely violent folks, and you know that once you put them away, you're going to become a target, and they're going to go after you. Now, it didn't help. It sounds like that the government basically, you know, made, you know, almost, you know, drew them a map to your house. Um, you know, that certainly is, you know, unconscionable. Um, but it's like, it's amazing how much risk that undercover people face every day and knowing when they successfully prosecute somebody, that's when they have the coming out of really who you are and what happened. So Jay, Jay, is this a, is this a case of, um, you know, so Ben and I spent, you know, 20 years of our lives, you know, navigating the politics in a big company. And so what are these government agencies? Well, they're, you know, they're a big company with guns and a lot more power than a, a, a normal corporation has. But I'm sure politics, you know, plays a huge part in everything that happens. So were you a victim of politics? Somebody didn't like you or or it was competitive or or was 
is this how generally people in your position get treated or 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 is there some middle ground or what what do you think why wouldn't they um support you in this case what do you think was the cause of not getting supported or is it because you just spoke out against them maybe to at the wrong time too quickly or what what happened why why do you think you're you're right on all of all of those uh characterizations um first i crossed paths with a perfect storm of people that were power corrupt and and arrogant and that's dangerous that that's a dangerous person to cross paths with um when the threats came out against me when my house was burned down when my uh, backstopping, my cover documents were exposed, and this is a whole nother backstory, the people that were responsible for that, the people that made those decisions were also the ones orchestrating one of the biggest scandals in American history, uh, the Operation Fast and Furious, where literally thousands of assault weapons were being allowed to, to get into the hands of drug cartels in Mexico. Hmm. So when I made this, this accusation that, that these people were, were making tragically, dangerously, like murderously bad decisions, I, I disrupted that boat a little bit. Um, the people that were responsible for it were also orchestrating Fast and Furious. And so they came after me. They were going to make sure that I shut my mouth um, and and didn't disrupt, you know, what turned out to be arguably the biggest scandal of the Obama administration um, was this massive gun running uh, scheme that blew up in their face. And, and the only reason it came out is because a Border Patrol agent, a guy named Brian Terry, was murdered south of Tucson by uh, or, or with guns that had passed through ATF's control and ended up in the hands of the cartels. If it hadn't been for that murder, they would have got away with it, and I would have been buried in the process. So you were you got were awarded whistleblower status, I believe, right? I was. I was classified as a whistleblower. Yes. So, and that was done under the Obama administration. Did it, it, it started under the Bush administration and was expanded by Obama administration. Is that correct or information false? Yeah, I believe Fast and Furious. I think the very early stages of it uh, uh, took place under uh, President Bush II's administration. It really okay. caught fire under uh, President Obama's administration. And uh, so, 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 Jay, you, you understand because you kind of were in that gun running world let's give these guys the benefit of the doubt let's straw man why did why would they do this what would what would be the possible positive outcomes of some program like that or are there any or i mean what what on earth were they thinking well i'll tell you what their what their very flawed scheme was was that uh, the big picture was to try to impact and affect uh enhanced gun laws and their scheme was to allow these guns to go to Mexico, to track violence and murders in Mexico, to then justify the argument that the United States was the source of all these murder weapons and all these violence weapons in Mexico, and therefore we had to have stronger gun laws in place. Now, you don't know, try to know, make sense of it. Yeah, uh, Don't try to make sense of it, because it doesn't. 
No, it doesn't. That is crazy. The people, so that, the people that retaliated against me, at the same time they were running Fast and Furious, to be quite honest, they were counting bodies stacking up in Mexico and celebrating the deaths of not only cartel people in Mexico, not even cartel members, but innocent people down there, citizens and civilians who were being caught in these ambushes and being slaughtered uh, by these drug cartels. Every time someone died, it enhanced their argument and it fulfilled their dream of building stronger gun laws because it, it built their argument for them. Right. And so this was a case where they, they wanted to see murders happen, which is really what's what's sickening about it. Uh, you know, selling guns, that's a financial transaction. Uh, so there's that part of it. But but what's really disgusting is it sounds like it was going to be in their benefit if people actually use those guns to to take lives. So very, very credible sources on the inside of that reported out that every time there was some ambush in Mexico, every time there was some slaughter down there, the people that were running fast and furious celebrated it because there were more bodies to count. Now, did these guns have special tracking on them or were they, were they sending data or did they, or how, how did the tracking work from these weapons? What, what was the mechanism or, you know, or were they tracing it back to the bullets or what's the, how are they doing that? You, you hit it on the head. They were tracing the guns. Every gun has a serial number stamped into it. There is a cooperative effort between uh, the government of Mexico and the government of the United States. So when these guns would turn up in seizures, in recoveries, uh, that they would be traced. And then ATF and the American government could say, okay, we know where this gun came from. So I remember Fast and Furious, and I remember it kind of the drums beating loud on it and the pressure on the Obama administration. And then the attorney general basically getting president, presidential privilege, uh, and it just ended overnight, it seemed like. It just went away. And it is a, a tragedy, and it is a demonstration of the power of politics, the power of money. The power of influence. Uh, Brian Terry's family never received any closure. They never received any answers. Uh, they received surface answers. Uh, their son and their brother died protecting the American people, uh, was killed with a gun that came through the American government's control and was placed in the hands of cartel members and no one ever pushed to the end to give them an answer. And what's worse is that on the American side, not one single person was ever held accountable or responsible for what took place. And there were hundreds of murders that took place with those guns. Well, you know what's you know you know what's crazy? I just did this test because you know there there was a con there you know there was some folks thinking. Things were getting scrubbed. If you if you go right now on Google, and I just did it, and you search for Fast and Furious, well, you know what you and I, I went through the first three pages of search results. This never comes up. So what 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 you see, of course, is all the trailers from the movies and the the Fast and Furious movie. But there is nothing. 
it comes up in the first three Google pages. I didn't keep going, but uh, nothing. I mean, it's been scrubbed. And are you telling me that these movies had more uh, impact than, you know, that that terrible political campaign? I mean, it's unbelievable. It's been scrubbed. We're, you know, we're talking beyond the um, the contested murder of cartels. We're talking even beyond the murder of federal agents with these guns. Brian Terry uh, killed south of Tucson. Jaime Zapata killed in Mexico with a fast and furious gun while on assignment in Mexico. We're talking even beyond those people. If you're a member of a cartel, like you're inviting yourself into a violent world and, and, and death and brutality is part of that. If you're a federal agent, um, people are gonna point guns at you and it's, it's a life and death job and the, the risk of losing your life is real. But there are innocent people, mothers, grandparents, babies, people that had nothing to do with this world that were slaughtered with fast and furious guns provided to the cartels through the US government and no one ever had their, even had their feet held to the fire. So based off of your experience directly when you were kind of a whistleblower and them unmasking you, you know, is is the ATF, you know, leadership corrupt? Do you still feel like they're corrupt? The big picture? No, I do not believe that. I never uh, lost faith. Um, I never lost the love of my agency. There are hundreds uh, actually thousands of good agents with their boots on the ground who go out to work every day to try to keep us safe. There are some great leaders there, some great executives, some great bosses uh, that serve the mission properly and fairly and honestly and with dignity and integrity. Um, but there are some dirty, nasty, rotten, lying criminals and when you put a person like that and you give them power and influence, um, man, that is such a dangerous combination. And that's what we ran into. Well, Fast and Furious is not something that was developed from the bottoms up, right? I mean, that's that's a top-down strategy. So the, the guys at the working level, like yourself, you guys didn't come up with that. I mean, th- this was this was, it had to be implemented by people at the working level, but they're following some orders from somebody, right? This isn't cooked up from the bottom. There's no uh, street agent. There's no first level supervisor that is over the course of years going to run thousands of assault weapons into the cartels and do it without very high executive approval of what's going on and support for it. Exactly. Now, I, I noticed, you know, part of it is you leverage the media to expose the story about, let's call it the bad apples at the ATF that, you know, really did you a disservice uh, unmasking you. And you leverage the media. If you fast forward to where we're at in 2020, do you think you would have been as successful in leveraging the media to expose the story? Or do you think it may have fell on deaf ears? It would have been sanitized. Well, you know, the, the, the truth of the story was, uh, it was just, it was unpopular. Even with the people that were hearing it, no one wants to hear that. 
we want to believe that we are better than that. We want to believe our government is better than that. I don't think it was ever going to receive a warm reception. Um, now, ATF, in my mind, like not only did they cut their own throat, they cut it deeper. When it started coming out and, and, and when the truth started coming out, they went into automatic denial protection mode. And um, man, that's, that, that's just a dangerous path if uh, you know to go to to try to hide something that is so blatantly obvious uh, it just makes people dig harder it makes people trust you less um and, and so there were some really bad tactical decisions made from the beginning to the end of that but are the agencies being held accountable certainly that whether the alphabet soup of agency these are people that are putting their life on the line, doing the right thing. But there are a few bad apples and, and probably at, at everybody in alphabet soup. Um, you know, the FBI certainly has taken a lot of heat over, you know, the past couple of years with, you know, from both sides politically of how handling Hillary and, and, and the servers to, you know, now what's coming out for uh, General Flynn seems pretty suspect. Um, you know, how do you, if you're an ATF agent, and you're putting your life on the line like you did. Uh, and let's say these scandals are going on while you're working. You know, does that demotivate you? Does that, you know, you think about your mission and whether it's worth it or? Great question. It does. Uh, it does kill morale. It does kill motivation. Um, you look at the, the beating the FBI has taken over, you know, in the political spectrum over uh, uh, what happened with, with President Trump and what happened with General Flynn and, and all those other elements to that. There's great FBI agents who are out there just trying to do their job. They're just trying to fight through it. Um, and it's hard enough as it is, right, without having to overcome that. Um, but nonetheless, you know, as a society, we, we paint uh, we'll paint agencies with a very broad brush. When we hear something terrible about ATF, when we hear something terrible about the FBI, as a society, we cover the entire agency with that blanket. That's not fair, but that is the way it is. And so, it, you know, nothing in life's fair. There is no such thing as fair. There's agents out there who continue to do their job and fight through and, and do it the right way with integrity. Um, but man, how do you overcome something so catastrophic as all these different things that are in the news. Yeah, that's a good point. You make a really good point about just the everyday agent trying to do a great job and they are, you know, stained with the same, you know, paint uh, that or mud that's going on with this. And you it's know, not it's, fair. It's, it's, it's who we are as a culture and as a society is every investment broker out there uh, dirty and corrupt and trying to steal your money because of what Bernie Madoff did? No, they're not. There's people out there do, like serving their profession like in the right way. But the Bernie Madoff story comes out and now everybody's suspect of the people handling our money. So true. Good question. So did you ever meet uh, Joe Pistone from the Donnie Brasco story? I did. Joe's a friend of mine, actually a very good friend of mine. Um, you know, the godfather of undercover. His story is, you know, Joe Pistone, if there was a Mount Rushmore 
of undercover agents. Joe's face would be carved in the granite there somewhere. He's, he's one of the best of the best, one of the godfathers, one of the legends. That's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I, I did listen to a few interviews of you uh, in prep of this podcast, and I love how you said that you want, in your past you wanted to be the, the Nick Nolte uh, when you're playing football at uh, North Dallas 40, right? And I was thinking, well, are you the Nick Nolte of North Dallas 40, or are you the much better version of Nick Nolte in 48 Hours with Eddie Murphy? Well, um, you know, uh, North Dallas 40 came out like the summer before my senior year in high school. And um, so this Nick Nolte character, like I just, I loved him and I tried to grow a mustache like that, but I wasn't really capable of it. I had this crappy high school mustache. Um, you know, like what version I am, man, that's such a tough question. Um, I don't know that I can answer that. I've, uh, like I said, I don't take myself all that serious. Um, I'm a common man who was placed in uncommon situations. And so, um, you know, I had great days. I had very successful days. Um, I had failures. I had very bad days. I did, I did some things good. I did some things bad. I tell people all the time, I'm not as good or as bad as you probably think. Well, it sounds like you're doing some great things now. Um, you know, from my understanding, you're doing podcasts of Copland promoting historic stories of law enforcement and fire and, and military. Um, and, it, and it sounds like you're also uh, back in Arizona as a football coach. I am. In December, uh, I took over a high school football program, Tangaverde High School in Tucson, which is a relatively new high school. The football program uh, historically had struggled. Um, uh, is, is struggling. Uh, you know, last year they didn't win a football game. And so, uh, I took this job for a lot of the same reasons that I, that I became a federal agent. It was the challenge of it. You know, I talked to people about this job, people I trusted before I became the head football coach there. And I was told, man, don't take that job. It's a lose-lose job. <laughs> and when I was told that... So what I told Ben told when he was joining my team. I'm like, dude, don't take, don't take this job. People that are telling me, man, don't take this job. You can't succeed there. They didn't realize they were motivating me. I was yeah. like, that is why I have to take it. That's a great story. So I, I, I got two personal clips from you. I, I can't play them because we got this technical glitch. But they're both called J-Ass Whoopin'. You have J.S. Whoopin 1 and J.S. Whoopin 2. And so one is a story you told when you were a kid where, where your dad's looking outside and he lets you get beat up by the neighborhood bully. And then the second one is where you get beat up in a bar. And um, they were, I, I thought they were really interesting stories because they, they, um, you, what you learned in the first fight um, that you lost, you kind of – you kind of used in the second one where the where the um, you know the kid you couldn't get the kid off of you and and that and, and so your dad taught you a, a valuable lesson you know you got to stand up for yourself but then in the in the bar fight where you're you're you know you're obviously losing um, and you're kind of outnumbered but but you still don't give up <laughs> and you still kind of tell them you know hey I'm not done so uh, 
maybe if you could uh, contrast those stories and and re since I can't play the clips, uh, if you could kind of relive those two for us. Yeah, you know, as a kid, as a very young kid, um, I was getting the crap beat out of me in my front yard. And my dad uh, basically watched it and allowed it to happen. And afterwards came and picked me up and, 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 and did actually a very good dad parenting job. He, he said, you know, you have to learn to fight back because there's always someone bigger and stronger out there. And if you don't fight back, you are going to spend the rest of your life being somebody's victim. And man, it's hard to process that at, at eight years old, but it's, it's so true. So, you know, you fast forward later into my undercover life. Um, and I was in a lot of battles. I was in a lot of fights. I was in a lot of perilous situations. Um, and I didn't always win those, but I learned to fight back. Like, you know, it's some, like you're going to lose sometimes. Then that, that's not just Jay Dobbins in some bar fight. That's any of us in life. Life is going to kick your ass. You have to fight back or else you're always going to be a victim. Did you feel that way when you, your first week in the job, you get shot, right? I mean, it. It, it could have been great, what it sounded like. What, tell us what was going through your head and, and when you, you know, recovered you know, from that injury and then said, I'm, I'm ready to go back at work. A lot of people would have quit. I, yep. mean, I, th I think a lot of people would have <laughs> not come back from that one. And you know, nobody got, would have blamed you. I got hired on a Monday. Four days later, I was taken hostage and shot. Uh, I, a, a bullet went in my back at point blank range. It went through my lung. It narrowly missed my heart. It exited my chest. You know, I'm laying in the dirt and garbage of a trailer park, having been on the job for four days with a giant pool of blood growing around me and, and blood coming out of my chest like you're holding your thumb over the end of a garden hose. Um, so yes, those, those young lessons, the lessons I learned from my dad, the lessons like Jimmy, that we learned through team sports, you have to fight back. You have to keep fighting back. What's the other choice to lay there and die was the other choice. That was the option. Um, but nobody, so, would have nobody would have blamed you for after recovering saying, this isn't the career for me. Can, but I, get a, can, I, get a, can I get a desk job, please? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, well, you, you know, I'll tell down. you what, there is a backstory to that. You know, when I was in the hospital, um, I had attorneys coming to my hospital room, like basically coming in. I mean, I'm, I've got a chest tube in. I've got wires and, and, and a, all kinds of hooked up to all kinds of medical machines, um, like trying to stay alive. And I had attorneys coming in saying, kid, you know what a million dollars looks like? Man, I had no idea. I mean, I grew up in a like lower middle class house. You know, my father was a carpenter. My father pounded nails until he couldn't pound nails anymore. My mother was a house cleaner. My mother scrubbed people's toilets for a living that didn't want to scrub their own toilets. So when someone says, do you know what a million dollars is? I had no idea. How about $5 million? You tell us how much money you want, and we'll go get it for you. The government has created a huge liability for themselves. You are not yet prepared, not yet trained for this situation. How much do you want? And to be honest with you, all I could think of was, man, go away. I didn't take this job for the money. 
That's not what I want to do. I want to go back to work and see if I can do it right. It's interesting. Yeah, because a lot of people, you know, a lot of people might have taken that check or a lot of people might have said, hey, I don't want to be out there. It's too dangerous. Um, so it's funny. I remember in your book, Jimmy, though, you trust kind of me now, I'm sitting here at 58 years old and I've been retired for six years. I'm like, why didn't you take the damn five million dollars, Jay? That <laughs> <laughs> would have been smart. Man, I'm a dummy. No, but uh, but you you kind of um, in your book, you sort of you you said you felt kind of more invincible. It's like, hey, I mean, what's the worst they can you know, they can shoot me. Right. And I'm look, I'm still here. I'm back. I, I you know, I can do this. So you, I think in your book, you kind of you get the feeling you're a young guy and, you know, you went through that and you made it out the other side. So it, it kind of emboldened you is what I think you were suggesting. If I got it that right. It did. No, you hit it. You're spot on. It, um, it didn't discourage me. It was a tragic event, but it empowered me. I was like, man, I had a bullet go all the way through my chest at point blank range. I was bleeding to death in the desert, but here I am like, it, 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 it empowered me. It, it, I felt like I was invincible. I felt bulletproof. I was like, what worse is going to happen? <laughs> so yeah, which gives you that great. Yeah. yeah. You need that kind of bravery, I think, or, um, maybe it's a naivete, you know, you, you, cause you're young and you know, that's how kids get in these car wrecks and everything. I mean, they think they're, you know, but, but if you don't have that, there's no way you could pull off what you did. Like if you if you weren't secure in yourself and had you know big balls, there's no way you walk into these situations you were in and and come out standing. So you you kind of had to have that. You had to be wired that way to succeed. Oh. You know, well, like I'll put the question back on you. Does anybody in any profession, any high achiever? get to where they're getting. I don't care if you're uh, a software designer. I don't care if you're in medicine or politics or you're a, a, a federal agent. Do any high achievers ever get to where they want to go or do amazing things without uh, a lack of confidence, without uh, a willingness to take risk and put everything on the line? Um, Probably not. I think we all do it at some point in our life. We put, we take our chips and we push them all to the middle of the table. And there's times when you simply have to bet on you. Yep. Well said. Well said. Um, so what, what advice would you give to somebody that's listening to this that is interested in doing undercover work as a career? Take the five million. <laughs> I would say that um, if you choose to do that, there are going to be good days and there are going to be bad days. There are going to be days when you succeed and there are going to be days when you fail. But it will be the most rewarding, satisfying, uh, fulfilling thing you could ever imagine. Um, you know, I caught passes in college in front of 70,000 people. And that is a rush. But when you are on the point, when you are interacting with violent predators who you know that if they find out who you really are, will put a gun to your head, a straight razor to your throat, if they'll put a baseball bat on the back of your head, the stakes are very high. They're life and death stakes. But when you win, 
man, there's, there's nothing like that. There's when you pull it off, that is a very tough, uh, feeling to replicate. And it, it, part of my downfall, to be quite honest with you, is that became my drug, that risk, that sense of achievement, that sense of like overcoming all the odds, man, that became my heroin, man. And I was addicted to it. So did your wife ever try to, you know, pump the brakes on this? You know, I got a couple, a couple good stories that I think answer that question. I came home at one point, you know, I had been away from the house for an extended period of time. And my wife told me, she said, you cannot walk in here after being gone and talk to me and the kids. Like we are your suspects on the street. We don't deserve that. And my self-defense response was, man, I'm not a light switch. I can't turn this character on and off. I have to stay on because people that treat what I do for a living, like a hobby, end up dead. I have to be on point. I'm not a light switch. Then her response was, when you come to this house, you better install a damn dimmer and turn that attitude down because it ain't flying here. And if you can't, <laughs> don't come home. So yes, I was I like challenged that. on that. You know, uh, during the course of my life with my son, you guys might've read this story in the book. Um, I would leave the house and my son would run out in the yard and grab a rock out of the yard and say, dad, don't leave yet. And he would give me a little, a little stone out of the yard. And for years and years, I had collected these, what I believed to be good luck charms to the point where I was giving them away to my partners and members of my task force saying, Hey, I don't know what the blessing that this kid is putting on these stones is, but here we are in the midst of all this violence and we're thriving and surviving. There's a blessing on these. And right before the Hells Angels case ended, we were getting ready to run a very dynamic operation. And Jackie runs out in the yard, dad, don't leave yet. And he comes with a stone. And I knew, I knew we had done this hundreds of times. And I was a 40 plus year old father now trying to comfort, you know, an eight year old boy. And I said, dude, I said, thank you for all these good luck charms. And they work so good, I've given them to all my friends and you've helped keep us safe. And he looked at me and he's standing in my driveway and there's this little boy, no shirt, no shoes on and tears start running down his cheeks. And he said, dad, those aren't for good luck and you shouldn't have given them away. They were just for you. And my brain froze. For years, I believed he'd been giving me good luck charms. And he's like, dad, that's for you to put in your pocket. And every time you think someone's going to shoot you or stab you, that's like me being there to help you and fight back. Wow. That is what I had done to my family. And that is my greatest regret. My heaviest guilt um, is that ultimately, to be quite honest, and, and, and this is not a flattering statement to make, you know, to an open audience, the people that don't know you, I was very selfish. I made decisions for me. I did things that I wanted to do, and I didn't consider the impact of the life I was living on how it was affecting people that were, how it was affecting my family, my wife and my kids. And to be quite honest with you, the people that loved me the most, the people that offered me the biggest support during that period of time in my life, I treated the worst. 
Wow. Uh, it's a it, it's a paradox, right? Because you've you you had to you had to be selfish. You had to put your you had to put all your energy in that. Otherwise, you would have made a mistake and you wouldn't be here. In 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 one sense, and then in the other sense, you. Th those were all conscious choices you made. You 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 decided to do that. That's what that's the career you picked. That's the uh, the path you chose to follow. So it, it's 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 a tough one. You know when you think of when how we grew up, Jay and I think our probably family situations were very similar. Um, you know big families and our parents were very hard workers and didn't have that much going for us. But but you kind of. You learn to be independent. You learn to do things on your own. You learn to think for yourself. And in some ways, that's the best thing for your kids, like the lesson your dad taught you. And in some ways, um, it's it's what your kids had to do. It seems like your kids turned out pretty well from our conversation. So is that is that what happened or what, how are your yeah. children today? I mean, I, how's no, your relationship? I, I think that's good. I think that's a good characterization. You know, if I had to do it all over again, all of it, top to bottom, I would do it again. But I just wouldn't put the battle damage I put on my family. I wouldn't be as selfish about it. I would think about someone other than myself uh, because I was, man, I was chasing what I believed to be a legacy. I was trying to make my name. You know, I wanted to dent the universe. I wanted, when I was gone, I wanted to re be remembered for having done something. And in that process, man, uh, man, I put a lick on my wife and my kids that I'm still trying to recover from. Well, you've had a long marriage. So how many years you've been married now? You know what? I have been married for 31 years, nice. which... There, there is no explanation for that other than <laughs> my wife is so much better than I deserve, to be quite honest with you, because I've given her a million reasons to kick me out, and she's given me a million and one second chances, you know, um, to be quite honest with you. There's, there's a great – there, there is a happy ending here, man. One of the things that has come from all this for me is – an improvement in, in my spirituality and, and an understanding of my faith and, and of God. And, um, you know, I learned, you know, I learned the hard way. If the only time you're talking to God is when you're in trouble, you're in trouble. And, um, and yeah. so that has really grown. And I, and I've, I've realized that for all of us, like our greatest contribution is not what we accomplish. It's not what we do for ourselves. It's what we can do for others. It's it's what kind of sacrifice can we make for other people um, that really holds the greatest satisfaction for us. Well, I think on that note, we should uh, call this a show. That was that's a great way to end this. And um, Ben, unless you have any more questions. No, I think this was fantastic. Jay, I really appreciate you sharing time with Jim and I and our audience, sharing your stories, lessons, life life lessons. Um, what is next for you? I mean, you're a football coach, and I mean, are you screenplays, books? you have anything else that we can mention here? You know, I've, like I've got a lot of things going on, but that, you know, the, the, 
the tiger never changes his stripes, right? Like I am all in as a high school football coach. I have a high school football, a football team that didn't win a football game last year. I get zero pay for this job. I'm all in. I, I don't have a plan B. That is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do everything I can within my power to um, not only help these kids uh, win football games, that's part of it, but to um, use some of the experiences from my life to build their self-confidence, to build their self-esteem, to show them through sports that they can go out there and they can do anything that they set their mind to. But man, you have to be on a mission. It's just, it's for all of us, you know, but it's um, like, there's a great opportunity with these young men in front of me to impact someone else's life beyond my own. Coaching is great for that. You know, the, the I just went to, I told you about that hall of fame induction for my track and basketball coach. I remember Bill Jewell, the guy that uh, coached, coached us. What a great man. What a great leader. What a great example. Um, I mean, I remember at that point in my life, he was one of the most influential coaches that I had just the way that he conducted the team and himself. And uh, I remember it, it changed a lot of things for me after that year. And we were so good. And, you know, I was like, wow, this is how it, this is how you get it done. Right. I, I, I learned that a lot from, from coach Jewel. Well, you were the star receiver on that team. So I do appreciate you stepping aside a time or two and letting me catch a pass as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Jay, I, I was, hope uh, I was just taller. Join, that's all. I hope you'll join Jim and I for a beer the next time you're in San Diego. So. It's a done deal. Like Ben, I saw that you, you know, I heard that you said you were on Point Loma. My father-in-law is actually buried at Fort Rosecrans. Oh, wow. So that's when we fantastic. come to San Diego, which is fairly regularly, that's a stop for us. You know, we go out there and honor my father-in-law and, and my mother-in-law is buried next to him. My father-in-law was a Marine that fought at uh, Iwo Jima and Guadalcanal. So um, we make yes, it a point you. to get out to Point Loma and pay our respects every time we're in town. Best view in Point Loma is from Fort Rosecrans. They, they I, I pay them with the ultimate respect. I tell all the time, man, if you got to be in the ground, this is where you want to be in the ground. Absolutely. It's a, it's a very patriotic town. I love it. I, I love that they put out the flags every, every Sunday. Uh, the Optimist Club does. It just makes you feel good. Short of Arlington, I could not imagine a better place to be buried. Well, I look forward to meeting you in person. Thank you again so much for sharing your stories with us. Um, it was fantastic. Thank you, guys. All the best. Thanks, Jay. All right. I'm, I'm stopping recording right now. We'll stay on, Jay. We're going to we'll wrap up. But. 47 millionaires on a ship with marble squares leaking up their lollipops. No one ever interrupts. 47 millionaires on a ship with marble squares playing with their teddy bears, talking about the rising Song, dancing, laughing all night long. Forty-seven millionaires on a ship with marble squares, praying to the morning sun, talking with their golden tongue. And I wished I was one of them. And I wished I was one of them. I'd love to be a millionaire. I 
ship with marble squares There was a wave that killed them all And now the lollipops are gone Forty-seven millionaires On a ship with marble squares Traveling to the nowhere land Where nasty pleasures never end And I wished I was one of them And I wished I was one of them May tell me how can it be That money can set you free Tell me how can it be That money can set you Tell me how can it be That money can set you free Tell me how can it be That money can set you free